Well, good morning, Branch Church. Happy Father's Day. It's good to be with you all here this morning and everyone online. No better place to be than at the house of the Lord with God's people. Amen. Amen. So there's a phrase that has come into our culture. You've probably heard it. Out with the old and in with the new. Have you ever thought where that comes from? Things we don't really ask, right? I went and I looked. Where did this come from? And a campus funeral. <laughs> Apparently, it comes from Lee Douglas IV, who actually kicked his mother out of the house. You better be a good reason, right? <laughs> Apparently, she was a lady of the night. She was a prostitute. So he kicks her out of the house, and he brings in the new, which is his new mistress. She will now be in charge of the house. Now, I have no idea if that's really true. I struggled to find any research that really felt solid to corroborate that, but it makes for a great story, does it not? <laughs> out with the old, in with the new. But it's coming to our culture, and there's many applications. We might say out with the old cell phone and in with the new. We might even use it in a moral way. Out with the bad attitude and in with the new attitude. This phrase may be thought of as we head into John chapter two this morning. We are gonna see a great picture of out with the old and in with the new. The old age is going to be out, the new age is going to be in. And when the new comes, it's refreshing, it's rejuvenating. And in this case with Jesus, the new age will always be new, it doesn't get old, it will never need to be replaced again. So as we study John chapter two this morning, here's what we are going to learn together. That Jesus makes the new age blessings a reality. Jesus makes the new age, those promised blessings of God, a reality by replacing the old age. And we're going to see it in two stories together this morning, water into wine and the temple and his body. Turn with me, please, to John chapter two, beginning in verse one. John chapter two, beginning in verse one. John writes and he says this. He says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. This is the third day since he spoke with Nathaniel in the last chapter. And this is taking place in Cana of Galilee. You can see a map on your screen. Cana is about eight to nine miles, depending on who you ask, north of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. So we are in the northern part of Israel by the Sea of Galilee. There's a wedding here a little bit west of the Sea of Galilee. And we are told something interesting that Jesus's mother was there. Why would John tell us this? Well, he's prepping us because she's gonna play an important role in the story. Verse two, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. The fact that Jesus, his mother, and the disciples were all invited shows that this is either a close friend or a family relative that is having the wedding. We don't know for sure, but Jesus is there and he makes a point to tell us the disciples are there. Why is that important? Because John chapter one, verse 14, what did they tell us? We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only. John is setting this up here. They were there, they saw it. Verse three, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. How in the world could you run out of wine at a wedding? You think you would have planned for this? Well, in this day and age, a wedding could last a week. 
You think how difficult it might be to plan for provisions, food, and drink for one wedding night. Imagine having to do that for seven in a row. And by the way, new people could show up each day, so you don't know how many exactly are going to be there. Now, for him to run out of wine, this is embarrassing. This is shameful. And D.A. Carson points out that in this time, there's some evidence that possibly the bride's side could sue the groom for not having the provisions up to task and to keep them going. Can you imagine if that were true today? People would think twice about inviting certain people to their weddings. Yeah, very different. She comes to Jesus, they have no wine. Why does she come to him? Well, she's probably learned to lean on her firstborn son because Jesus' dad is no longer in the picture. You'll see throughout the story, it describes everyone except for him. Jesus knows the loss of a father. And it's very sad to say on a day like this, but it's amazing to think about our Lord and what he has experienced and that love and grace and strength that he continues to extend to us in the pain that he has felt. So verse four, Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. You read that and go, hold on a second. What just happened? We're going to take it in the order of the Greek text. So the first thing Jesus says to her is what to you and to me. That's very hard to translate. It's an idiom. And so he's basically saying, what does this concern have to do with you and me? Why do we need to be concerned about? Why is Mary so concerned? Because she doesn't want him to be shamed. She just has a really big heart. Maybe it's a relative and she doesn't want them to be embarrassed. We don't know. But for whatever reason, she's coming to him. We're out of wine and she's looking to him to do it. And he basically gets, well, here's the thing. This phrase, when it's used in the New Testament and when it's used in the Old Testament in the Greek translation, it's always confrontational and it's always a slight rebuke. And you're like, Sean, you're not solving how I'm feeling about this verse. I know, I'm sorry, but it's going to come full circle here in a moment. So there's a slight rebuke here. And you go, he's rebuking his mom? Yes. I know, I was a little surprised studying too. Like, that's, that's what it is. So we're going to teach it. He says, what to you and to me, what does this concern have to do with you and me, woman? He doesn't call her mom, doesn't call her ma'am, doesn't call her mother. He says, woman, how are we to understand that? Well, first of all, it's not rude. This is not rude. It's not the ideal word a son would use for a mother. It's not the most endearing word he could have chosen, but it's not disrespectful. It's not rude. He'll actually use the same word in John, I think it's 1926-ish, when he speaks from the cross and he has John take care of his mother. He uses the same term. It's not less endearing. It's not less loving. What makes the whole thing make sense here is the next phrase. My hour has not yet come. What does this have to do? Jesus, we're out of wine. My hour has not yet come. And you're like, how does that work together? That doesn't seem to make sense. I'm trying to get this guy to help out and you're talking about an hour. What, what are you doing? What's going on? So I think there's two things going on here. When Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, number one, he uses this as an opportunity. He uses the wedding as a parable to tell something about himself, to bring up his hour. She didn't ask for it, but he brought it up. And when he brought up his hour, he's bringing up the hour of his death and resurrection. This whole, well, get ahead of myself. The hour of his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, all of it's wrapped up in this meaningful hour where we will read eventually together where he will say it is finished. The second thing I think he's doing here, 
is he is saying this, I am going to therefore be led by this hour and nobody else. This hour will dictate my every move. This hour will dictate my actions and my thoughts and how I will respond to things. Not any human relationship, not even my mother. Now, Jesus was required to honor his mother and his father growing up. Did he do it? Absolutely. He was sinless. If he messed this up, none of us are forgiven. We might as well go home. But he was sinless. He was perfect. He honored her. But there was a point where he was, the spirit came upon him and he was publicly anointed to do this ministry. And so Jesus now is beginning to help people understand that by using things like a wedding to say, it's my hour, it's my time is gonna come and it's the Father's will that is ultimately gonna drive this. And you'll see this, I believe, at least one more time throughout the Gospel of John where Jesus will make very clear, human people are not going to lead him, it's going to be the Father's will in his hour. And we all say amen and thank God for that. (laughs) Verse five, notice her response. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do. She doesn't get upset. She's not mad at him. She doesn't feel disrespected. She says to the servants, he's in charge. Whatever he says, you do it. There's a picture in a sense, I forget who said it, where she comes like a mother, slightly rebuked into understanding the Messiah's hour. And then she responds as a faithful believer, whatever he says, do. And she becomes a beautiful picture for us. Whatever he says, do. Verse six. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. What were six giant water pots doing at a wedding? Well, these were highly symbolic. These were purification things that they would use. So presumably, maybe people would wash their hands so they could be clean before they eat. Remember, the Pharisees were big on this. You guys ain't washing your hands, Jesus. You got to tell your disciples to wash their hands. He tells them, I believe in Mark 7, it's not your hands that make you dirty. It's your heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, that's where all the defilement comes from. So maybe it was some kind of washing of hands. It also could be Uh, washing of the utensils before they use them to eat with. So something like that. The stone here that they used for them meant that whatever was inside it was not going to get unclean and stone would help them to do that. So basically, what are these pictures here? And this is very significant to the story. These picture here, the Jewish law and custom. This water pots, this purification, pictures that old age, that old law and old custom we find in the New Testament that is very significant to what is about to happen. Verse seven, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. They are completely full, which is gonna indicate the magnitude of what is about to happen. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. The master of the feast in Greek is the word head waiter. So think of someone who's in charge of all the catering. This is the guy who they take it to. He could also possibly be in charge of the venue as well. Verse nine, when the master of the feast, that is the head waiter, when he had tasted the wine, the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
the master of the feast, that is the head waiter, he called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. Drunk indicates some level of intoxication. We don't know how much. He says, you have kept the good wine until now. And thus Jesus changes water into wine. And he does a lot of it. There's somewhere between 120 gallons to 150 gallons of water. And without touching it, without saying anything out loud that we can discern in the text, he changes one substance of H2O, two hydrogen, one oxygen, into a different substance of wine. And wine that tastes good. The guy's like, this is the bomb. This is amazing. You save the best till last. Do you know what it would take in order to get really good tasting wine? You got to pick the grapes at just the right time. You got to get that right sugar and acidic level balance just right. Pick them. And then you're going you're gonna to press them. And then you're going to put them through that fermentation process where you're going to add yeast. And then the sugars are going to turn into ethanol and, and carbon dioxide. Why are you telling me all this, Sean? Because Jesus did all that like that. 1,000 to almost 1,500 pounds of water he takes and he transforms it into the best tasting wine people have probably ever, ever had on this earth and will taste until he returns again. But what does it actually picture? Wine is a picture of God's abundant blessings. And thus it is a symbol of the new age. It is a symbol of the new age promise blessings. Turn with me to Joel. I'm going to show you two Old Testament passages that speak about wine. Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, verse 18. God is speaking about blessing his people after the exile. And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine. The hills shall flow with milk. Even milk becomes a symbol of God's abundance. And all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. One more book to your right. Go to Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Another picture of God restoring them after exile. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine. There's that picture again. And the hills and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people, Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord God. Jesus makes the new age blessings a reality by replacing the old one. And he symbolized it here in a picture of taking water and changing it into wine. When it comes to the new age, we are called to believe in Jesus's ability to make it a reality. Whatever promises that God has made, has God made promises? 
has God made a lot of promises. You better believe it. God's talked about his kingdom. He has talked about forgiveness. He's talked about mercy and judgment. Whatever promises he has made, 2 Corinthians 1, take a note of this. They are all yes in Jesus Christ. Whatever promised blessing we are looking forward to in the new heavens and the new earth, there is only one name, only one person who can make that a reality. Who is that? Jesus Christ. Christ. Only he can take the old age and transform and bring it into the new. And he is revealing his glory. Let's look at verse 11 together. John 2, 11. He says, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Why did he do this miracle? Was it to impress you? Was it to show off? Was it a party trick? Was it to pick up girls? Absolutely not. Why did he do this? To reveal his glory for the end result that you and I and the world would do what? Would believe upon him for everlasting life. We are entering into what has been known as the book of signs. Chapter two, all the way through about chapter 11, 12. You cut John in half, you have these book of signs. John has continually given us this. Continuing on here, we are now gonna jump from the wedding scene to the temple. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So they're going to leave and head north, northeast, about 16 miles to Capernaum, which is likely a transliteration of the village of Nahum. You can see it, Capernaum, looks like the village of Nahum. Why did they not stay there many days? Because it's holiday season, it's Passover, verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Passover was a significant holiday for the Jewish people. It's one where God brought about a merciful, amazing deliverance and then God commanded them to keep it so they could remember that merciful, amazing deliverance. God was bringing judgment on the firstborn. And he said that if you were to put blood On the doorpost, he would pass over. The destroying angel would pass over and he would have mercy. He would rescue, he would save. Israel obeyed and did that. God saw the blood sacrifice and he had mercy and rescued them, but the Egyptians did not do it. They did not believe. And God shows his glory and power over them. Pharaoh thought he was a God. Pharaoh probably thought his son was a God and a God to be. And when God does these judgments, he shows them very well. I am Yahweh, the only God. And he shows his glory and the world still to this day remembers it. They were to come together and they were to celebrate Passover on the 14th of Nisan. That's about the end of March, beginning of April, right around the time that we do Resurrection Sunday ourselves. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, Geographically, he's going down, but elevation wise, he's going up. So don't let anyone fool you with that. Verse 14, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Okay, we're in the temple. Solomon built the original temple. It was demolished. Zerubbabel comes back in exile. They build the next temple. Not as great as the first, but it's still the temple. It's a picture of God's presence where he met with them, where he he reigned in Israel. It was beautiful. Herod comes along and Herod is going to renovate that temple. And if you could look on your screen, there'll be a picture of this temple. Now the outside area is what we're looking at right now called the court of the Gentiles, a name given to it much later in time that we have given. 
it is said that 75,000 people could comfortably be in this area, this court area you're looking at. To put that in perspective, you remember Qualcomm, right? The glory of Qualcomm, AKA even better, Jack Murphy Stadium. If you were to fill that stadium up with all the extra seating, you would get about 75,000 people. So this is a massive area full of a lot of people at a very busy time celebrating a national holiday, people coming from all over the countries around to celebrate it. And what does Jesus find there? He finds animals and people changing money. Is this good? Well, in one sense, yes, because they were a part of the worship. If you're coming from Galilee and you're coming some 90 miles down, that would be hard to bring all your sacrificial animals with you. You go on a trip, you bring some food, but you don't buy all your food, right, until you get there. So there were some provisions to help people who were traveling. And the money changers, this was right too, because the temple tax was paid in a Tyrrhenian coinage because of its high purity of silver. So if you're coming from out of country, you got to do the whole change, and the money changers would take a little swipe for themselves. Verse 15, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Jesus does here one of the most unique actions in all of the New Testament, maybe even all of Scripture, and your picture of Jesus shatters of everything maybe you thought about him. What did he just do? Why did he just do that? He tells us, verse 16, and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house into a house of merchandise. What, what, what went wrong? What sent Jesus into this very forceful act where he drove animals, where he took money and he slapped it on the ground and he took a table and flipped it over? What sent Jesus into that kind of passion, to that kind of forceful action? It's because they took God's house of prayer, God's house of worship, and they turned it into a business market. That upset Jesus very much to the point where he made a whip. I had a hard time trying to find exactly what this whip looked like. This word's only used twice, or the word whip is only used once. And then the whip of cords or ropes, it's only used twice in the New Testament. So it makes it harder to find. But it seems to be some sort of rope, a thin piece of rope. And probably a few of them wrapped a handle and he starts driving out these much larger animals. It doesn't seem he was whipping people. It seems he was moving the oxen and these big animals. And the people probably flew after their animals after they're taken off in that direction. Jesus, kind of maybe two things here. One is not a wimp. If he was, they probably would have like came back and, you know, had a little talk with him. They didn't. Jesus is very strong, very much a man, great to see in scripture. And secondly, Jesus is intensely passionate about the worship of God. If you go to Mark chapter 11, verse 17, you don't have to turn there. But when Mark tells this story, he gives a few different words here that help us understand. Jesus said, God's house is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, but you are making it a den of robbers. And Jesus in that passage cites, if you want to come with me, to Isaiah 56, verse 7. Isaiah 56, verse 7. Jesus will cite this. 
this verse. Even then I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. God desired that area of that temple that we saw to be a place where people would worship God, but the worship of God was being drowned out by the noise of cattle. The confession of sins was being drowned out by the noise of money exchanging from one hand to the next, and Jesus was having none of it. Verse 17, then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. This is probably taking place after he rose from the dead. And they remember this verse. What does this verse have to do with Jesus and what he just did? Well, turn with me quickly to Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is the Psalm of David. In Psalm 69, verse 9, David says this, because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David was so passionate to be zealous as to have a deep, intense passion for something. He was so passionate about God's house that it put him in a place where he was actually getting in trouble with other people, even his family. They didn't like it. So he's being reproached. He's being insulted. And he's crying out to God in the Psalm, save me, deliver me. This is a picture of David as a righteous, suffering servant of the Lord. And so when it was now being cited in the New Testament in John, there is a typological connection made. King David was zealous for God's house and it ate him up and got him in trouble. How much more the son of David, the true king, the everlasting king, would his zeal eat him up? And what did happen to Jesus? He was consumed by his death. And that pictures his death here in John chapter two, verse 17. And so they connected it. This guy is the Messiah, the son of David, the true Davidic king we have been waiting for. It's amazing how the resurrection makes so much sense of everything in scripture when they look back. Verse 18, so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? So here's a great picture of no self-examination, no self-reflection. Jesus, what did we do wrong? What did we miss? Can you show us in the Old Testament? Is there a verse somewhere that helps us see what we're doing wrong? No, we want a sign to know that you got some authority to do what you just did. Obviously, he's got some kind of presence, right? Because they didn't come and try to arrest him. They didn't try to mess with him. Kind of a fun thing. Verse 19, Jesus answered, and he said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Remember, this place is huge. Imagine if someone said to you, I will destroy Qualcomm, destroy Qualcomm Stadium and I will rebuild it in three days. You just laugh at him. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you, there's a great emphasis here in the Greek. You, surprisingly, maybe even mockingly, you, you're gonna do it in three days? Dude, come on, man. Verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus does two great things here. One, he does give them a sign. It's the sign of the resurrection. It's the same sign he gives in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, except there he uses the picture of Jonah. Jonah in the whale, Jesus in the earth, he's gonna come out. He was speaking of the temple of his body and he makes a connection here. He brings in temple and then he brings in his body and he connects the two. 
The temple was the place where they worshiped God. Destroy that and I will raise it, his body in three days. Jesus is going to replace the temple as the place, the locus of the worship and the presence of God among his people. Isn't this great? Jesus makes the new age blessings a reality, water into wine. He also makes them a reality by replacing the old temple with his new resurrected body, as Carson points out in his commentary. Isn't that so awesome? Jesus is so profound when we read the specific details of the stories about him. Sometimes even I, we talk so generally, right? He's omnipotent, omni this, great and strong. But when you get in and see like the specifics of why or how he shows us this, you're like, yes. Something about specifics make things a whole lot greater maybe in our hearts. At least I kind of feel that way. Verse 22, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Jesus did way more signs than this. John will tell us at the end of the gospel. If they were all written down, the world probably wouldn't have enough material to write it all down. Probably speaking hyperbolically of there was more than we could count. And what happened? People believe. But this is interesting. Their faith seems to be disingenuous. Look at verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. What would it mean for him to commit himself? He, to be duped by them? To, to follow them around? To, to think that they're really following women they're not? I'm not exactly sure. But he didn't do it because he knew all men and he had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in a man. He knew exactly where their hearts were at. He knew exactly if they were truly believing or not and what they were really after. And this is a good thing that the Lord knows this. We can't follow a Lord who could be duped, a Lord who can be persuaded, a Lord who can be tricked. We don't. He knows your heart full well. There's a measure of joy and a measure of terrifying maybe in that. Good terrifying, hopefully. He knows. Even if I can't express my heart, you know it. Even if I can't fully understand the dark corner cobwebs of my heart, you know it. Lord, that's good because you're good and you care about those recesses of my heart and mind. Thank you, Lord, for that. Today, we've been blessed to see that Jesus makes the new age promises a reality by replacing the old age. We saw it in water and to wine. We saw it now with the temple and with his body. We're going to continue to see it with the new birth. No longer Jacob's well, right? It's going to be this great picture that just keep going forward and putting our hearts in a place where they go, I believe no one else can do this. As you leave here, I encourage you to believe in the ability of Jesus. To believe in the ability and only in his ability to bring in the new age promised blessings of God. He can and he will. We've already tasted the kingdom and he will fully bring that kingdom one day. May you continue to walk in faith. And for those of you who don't know, you're on the fence, do I, should I really believe? Yes, he's revealed his glory. And I pray you would fully cast yourself upon him to save you. Amen.